0: And welcome. Um, I'm aware that um, a number of here tonight, perhaps here for the first time, um, what we're doing in this sort of series in the evening is doing sort of an overview of the Bible. We've called it His Story, because we're seeing that ultimately all the Scripture is the story of Jesus Christ. That's what he himself claims, isn't it, on the road to Emmaus. All the Scriptures bear testimony about me, he says. We're saying it's all his story, which you might have noticed is a play on words. History. Hmm. Yeah. Now you know. Now you get it. Um, in a moment, I'll catch up to speed. If this is your first time here, I'll, I'll do my best to sort of catch up on the last uh, two sessions. Um, but um, all the songs coming in. Brilliant. Shall I, shall I lead some prayer? Let's bow our heads. Oh Father God, we thank you for the chance to gather tonight. We thank you again for that beautiful sun setting as we sang your praises. Who else commands the hosts of heaven? Oh, Father, you are majestic. You are mighty you control the armies of angels which are at your disposal. You are to be feared, and yet we come here with confidence because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you that by faith we are saved, because how else could we possibly be saved? So tonight, Lord, as we look at this next sort of little bit of the story and its complexities, and we pray, Lord, that you would just, wouldn't just speak to our heads, you would move our hearts. Show us again the Lord Jesus Christ. In these uh, pages of scripture, and we ask this in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Okay, then, previously on his story, um, in the first week, we were thinking about God's covenant with Adam, the Adamic covenant. Come on in. Um, and uh, in God's covenant with Adam, you may remember how God placed Adam in the Garden of Eden completely freely by grace. He says, You're here by grace. But then he's told to stay in that garden, he must obey. If he disobeys, it's curses and exile eastwards. And that's exactly what happened. Adam and Eve, they disobey, and so they're exiled far away, eastward, out of that garden, out of that, that temple sanctuary, out of that holy ground. And that was really bad because death and, and curse fell upon mankind and, and a curse fell on the ground, and it was all very bleak. But then we saw last week how God made another covenant with, with Noah. And uh, this covenant was very different. When God um, was explaining his curse upon the serpent in Genesis 3, he promised that one day there would be a seed from Eve, an offspring of Eve, who would, who would come and crush the serpent and bring mankind back into Eden, back into that, the, the ground which had been cursed. And so as we follow the plot line, we come to Noah. And Noah looks like he's this guy. Noah is righteous. He's, he's blameless in all his generation. He obeys where Adam disobeyed. And um, God makes a covenant with Noah after the flood. And this is a different type of, of covenant. Um, we, we saw this last time. Welcome. coming in, guys. Coming in. Come and grab a seat. Someone's been shopping for beers. Carling. Do we get alka this time? No. So you remember that we've seen these uh, two different types. You can grab some handouts. Next time you're going to arrive on time, aren't you? Because this is just too embarrassing. Too embarrassing to, to hold up events. Don't worry. Don't worry. We won't make a big thing of it. Um, <laughs> We, uh, so remember these are two types of covenants um, one of them, the technical name is a suzerain vassal treaty we, we've kind of rebranded that as a, as a king's contract that's the one which Adam had you're in the garden by grace but to stay in you've got to be, a, got to be obedient and it's blessings or curses if you, if you obey or disobey God's covenant with Noah is different it's, it's what's called an, a royal grant or an inherited reward that's how we rebranded it this covenant was cut as a result of Noah's obedience, in by works, we might say, in by works, but then on by grace for his offspring. And so that's what happened. Because, uh, uh, going back, even though uh, God's uh, curse is stretched over mankind, this curse of death, this curse on creation itself, God has nonetheless promised to sustain creation as long as the earth remains, sustain it for that final seed to come, that final saviour to come, who might bring mankind back into the land. And anyone in union with, uh, with, with, with that promise uh, receives from it. So that's kind of where we got up to last time. So um, where are we in this box? If you want to fill in this, this diagram, God's people, who are God's people at this time? Well, it's Noah and his boys, Noah and his offspring, so we're still looking, who is this saviour who's going who's to draw us back into the land? We ruled out Noah as the, as the saviour because he fell in the garden like Adam did. But, but at this point, Noah and his seed are, 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 the, are God's people. What about God's place? Well, God's ground is, is, is no longer as cursed as it was. Noah relieved the curse upon the ground. He didn't completely remove it, but he relieved it. And, and we saw that in part because the first thing Noah does after uh, in the new creation, is plant a vineyard, a garden. And so it, it's, it's like a, a new creation of sorts, but not quite. And God's presence, what we saw last time, God's presence is, is um, God's plan is to bless all of creation. The rainbow stretches over the whole cosmos. God promising to sustain it and preserve it as long as the earth remains, until that saviour comes. That's kind of where we got up to uh, last time. But let's look. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 9 um, and verse 1. And uh, we'll just remember this command which uh, God gave to Adam and then later again to Noah. Chapter 9, verse 1. Then God blessed Noah and his sons saying to them be fruitful increase in number and fill the earth once again god is commanding mankind to spread out and you may remember back in genesis 1 and 2 that was the original intent for mankind wasn't it to spread god's blessing out to the ends of the earth to, to spread god's name his reputation to spread god's blessing to spread order where there is chaos and again this command is repeated. And in chapter 10, it appears as if that's what's happening. Um, we won't read it because it's a very long chapter full of unpronounceable names. But we see here that mankind, um, that is Noah's three boys and their offspring, the Japhethites, the Hamites, and the Semites, spreading out across the earth. And we're thinking, yes, this is good. They're obeying this command to spread out, fill the earth, subdue it. It looks like they're spreading they intent of spreading God's name. And in fact, the name Shem, um, where the Semite, come, the Semite people come from, where we get the word anti-Semitic, the name Shem means name. God is going to see his name go uh, out to the ends of the earth through particularly this people, the Semites. So it looks like a promising start as these 70 nations... Spread out uh, across the globe, and it probably would have looked a little bit like this. Um, we're trying to archaeologists have kind of worked out where most of these places are, and you see the Hamites generally go out to Africa, but notice Canaan. A number of them stay in Canaan. Um, the Semites tend to go into the Arabian Peninsula. The Japhethites go north into sort of Asia and Europe, um, and, uh, and and that's uh, that's probably generally where where they kind of spread spread to. Um, I came across, um, my research, this beautiful piece of art which um, someone made to sort of uh, show the, uh, the spread of the nations. You see the flood there in the middle, and it's basically showing the different sort of family tree and how it all ends. And then from one man, as it says in Acts 17, from one man, all the nations of the earth uh, came. And I love that piece of art. Unfortunately, the, the resolution isn't quite good enough to be able to see it, but, but um, it's a wonderful piece uh, of art sort of conveying this idea spread of the nations uh, throughout the earth But here's the question what what precipitated what led to all the nations spreading out Well, not actually told in chapter 10 it generally looks like a good news story we get we get a few baddies like the Canaanites we all know are baddies and the the people the, um, from Babylon we know they're baddies don't we we meet a few baddies like Nimrod who's a, who's a mighty warrior against the face of God but, but generally, it looks encouraging in, in chapter 10. But why did they spread out? And here's where we reach the famous story of Babel, which in chapter 11 actually happens before chapter 10. It, it's, it's out of chronological order. Uh, chapter 11 explains why the nations are spread out in chapter 10. And we see the reason why Babel happened is because mankind refu- is refusing God's command to spread his name. Instead, they desired to gather together to make a name for themselves. So let me read uh, verse, uh, verses 1 to 9 for you. Chapter 11. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastwards, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They t- said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and bitumen from mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down, Yahweh, the Lord in capitals, came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they won't understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That's why it's called Babel or Babylon because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the of the earth. So what are they doing here? Well, I think the way I was always taught at Sunday school is um, uh, mankind trying to build their way up to God. Uh, perhaps the, that's sort of what, what you were taught at Sunday school. Mankind in his arrogance is trying to sort of climb up to the heavens and make a sort of a ladder using a sort of a big tower. That's probably not what they're trying to do. Uh, clearly their motive is to make a name for themselves. Um, most likely, what they're trying to do is very similar to these sort of ziggurats, so like this one in, in Iraq, which is still standing, the ziggurat of Ur. And um, what they would do, essentially, these pyramids, and on top would be a temple. This is probably what it would have looked like uh, originally. See, atop there, there's a temple. And the purpose of these temples isn't to try and build up to God, but trying to bring God down. It's to try and bring God down, and therefore, it's almost control him <laughs> in your little temple. If you manage to sort of pull down the deities, into your place, then you really have a, you have a claim over him, don't you? Now consider this in the light of what we heard already. God says to mankind, spread out and spread my name, spread my blessing, spread my order throughout the world. And mankind at this point goes, no. Two fingers to you, God. We're going to stay in one place. We're going to make a name for ourselves. And we're going to do that by trying to control you and isn't that pretty much what we see today people desperate to make a name for themselves and people even trying to control or, or, or trying to coerce the gods uh, trying to bring them under their control under their power by any means necessary in order to make a name for themselves um, this uh, event is, is um, captured um, Beautifully in, in these um, uh, Bruegel paintings. You, you, this one, the Great Tower of Babel. Um, until this week, I wasn't aware of another painting he did about the Tower of Babel. Um, and look at this one. This is called the Little Tower of Babel, only because the painting's smaller. But um, wh- what building does that look like to you? Can you see any. Coliseum. The Colosseum in Rome. So as Bruegel read this story, he oh, yeah, it's just like Rome, They're trying to make a name for themselves and all their power. Um, it's, quite, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Beautiful piece of art. But there's something else I want to show you from this passage. And it's not abundantly obvious, but it's really important. And it's, um, I imagine it's something most of us have never heard before. Um, so we'll have a bit of Q&A in a moment's time. Um, because I think it, it will go, what? Because uh, it's quite strange. And there's another element to the Tara of Babel. It is a story of mankind trying to make a name for themselves, trying to bring God down. Um, it's also the story of God disinheriting the nations and placing those nations under the um, vice-regency of other gods. Let me show you from uh, Deuteronomy 32. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance. When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. It seems as if in the Babel incident, um, God isn't just um, punishing mankind by, by, by spreading them out across the ends of the earth. He's also disinheriting the nations, and, and he's just choosing one people to be his people, to be the inheritors of his promises, and all the rest are disinherited. But that doesn't mean they have no God over them whatsoever. Instead, God hands them over to other gods. It's very similar to Romans 1, where God hands people over to their sin, this is what god does at babel he's handing them over the other nations to other deities if you like and and this is why you see read earlier in, in deuteronomy 4 god says do not he says the is right do not lift up your eyes toward all towards all the hosts of heaven and bow down to them and serve them things that the lord your god has allotted to all the peoples under the heavens but the lord has taken you and brought you out from the furnace of iron from egypt to be a people of inheritance to him as it is to this day. So, so Israel later, they're very different because they have Yahweh as their God whereas the other nations, Egypt for example, they are placed under the evil leadership of other gods. If you can put it like that. And you see this reflected in other Psalms. Let me show you this Psalm which is very weird. It's the Psalm of Asaph. God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods he holds judgment and then he lays into the gods for, for allowing injustice to occur, injustice to happen and he says later verse 6, I said you are gods, sons of the most high, all of you nonetheless like men you shall die and fall like any prince arise O God says the psalmist arise judge the earth for you shall inherit all the nations. Okay, so Babel, God is, is disinheriting all the nations, placing them over the, uh, under the leadership of, of bad gods, which, as we see in Psalm 82, lead the people to, to worse corruption, worse injustice, to which both the people and their gods are to be held to account. Because God has a plan one day to re-inherit all the nations something which we're going to see later happen at Pentecost. Hello, Sean, come on in. Grab a hand up, just down there. Just there. <laughs> Grab a seat, brother. Well done. Now, I'm aware that's quite complicated, and um, you might be asking, what on earth is the, d- the divine counsel in verse 1? Um, well, if I can make a summary diagram, this might be helpful to you. Um, the Hebrew word for God, Elohim, um, can be translated in a number of different ways. It can refer to the Godhead, Yahweh, the Trinity. It, it can also refer to the sons of gods, that, that is the, the, the gods who are over all the other nations. Uh, it can also refer to angels, seraphim, cherubim, who are messengers, soldiers, guardians. It, can even, it even refers at one point to um, the, the soul of Samuel, who, um, who is summoned up by the witch of Endor. Um, and uh, he, he's described as an Elohim, because he's not of the, of, of, of the earth, he's of the heavens. So essentially this, this Hebrew word Elohim is a catch-all phrase for any being which isn't an earthly being, a supernatural being. And uh, we see in places like Job chapter 1, where God is a divine counsel... Has like a, It's him, and, he's, and he's, uh, he's delegated authority to other beings, uh, the Satan being, being one of them, famously, in Job chapter 1. Now, I'm aware that's, that's all pretty new, uh, I imagine, for much of you. And um, that seems to be what's going on in, in Babel. We've got this twin thing. Mankind in their rebellion, trying to make a name for themselves, and God handing over the rebellious nations over to other gods. And we're going to see next time how, what God's going to do about those other gods. First instance in the Exodus. Um, but um, I thought we might pause there for Q&A, because I imagine, for some of us, because we've just learned a whole new bunch of stuff. And so why don't you turn to the person next to you, chat for a few moments, and let's have a little bit of Q&A on that. You might, some might be wondering what... what okay, this is interesting, why does this matter? I, I, I guess the ta- one of the takeaway points from this is, is the fact that the Bible's much weirder than you think think it is. <laughs> um, and I mean that seriously. I, I think some of us, we probably w- we've, we've probably been so deeply impacted by um, materialism and so deeply impacted by uh, the, the philosophy of the Enlightenment that we kind of just basically reduced the spiritual realm down to God. as God, and then everything else is the material world. And we're slightly, if we're honest, we're a little bit embarrassed about angels, aren't we? They're a bit embarrassing. And um, we're a little bit embarrassed about Satan. We might mention God to our friends. We'll probably, hopefully mention Jesus to our friends. Definitely wouldn't mention Satan and angels, because that's weird. And we're slightly freaked out by that, aren't we? We probably need to repent of that and just put our hands and say, yeah, the Bible's weird. And if there's a God, a disembodied, created being, then w- how is it any weirder than to believe in other things? Um... But that's why this really matters, and also, also it helps us read the Bible better. Um, but that's a bit of Q&A, is things which people... Don't Tom. Very specific. Yeah, good question. So Tom's question is: Well, hang on. I thought various places like Isaiah says that there are no gods at all. How does that? How do we square that with um, with places? That, yeah, with, with what we've just heard? Are these gods real beings, or are they, or, or are they not? Um, we, when we're reading scripture, we need to read it in a way which doesn't do damage to other bits. And also we need to be careful of, of not reading one bit of scripture as the lens through which we read the rest of it. The danger is that we take an Isaiah text like that, saying they are they're, they're not gods at all, and go, aha, they're, they're, they don't even have an existence, they're not even a thing, the only spiritual being is God, and we read that as the lens through which we then read all these rest of these passages. His you read the Old Testament, it's evident there are gods in, uh, read the Exodus for example where the, the ex- part of the, all those plagues upon Egypt we're going to see next time is against the gods to show the, the Egyptians that God, that, that is Yahweh is greater than their gods not just that they don't exist and I think the concern in Isaiah is that the, the chunk of wood which they're bound t- down to isn't God but there is a spiritual reality above that um, I think you get some of that in 1 Corinthians don't you um, where um, uh, Johnny, where does it say many lords? Oh, here we go. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 he says, uh, so then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there's no God but one. But even if there are so-called gods whether in heaven or on earth as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father. He goes on. So I think Paul, Paul would admit no. There, there are there is a spiritual reality, as we heard in Ephesians, that there is a spiritual realm, rulers, powers, and authorities. There is a demonic. There are demonic agencies, and um, we're going to see essentially that these um, those those members of the divine council which rebelled against God. Um, some of them might have been destroyed in the flood, and uh, but but um, these these beings they 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 still have an influence, have a power. Um, yeah. It's Ollie first, then Connor. No, same, question. same question. Connor. Well, I So like if you take a specific one, like Bar, like the bit before more seems to me to say bar is But would you say that's the same thing as wood? Or yeah. Um so what about Barn in particular? Yeah, it's an interesting case study. Um so basically, there's a battle over land, isn't there? Who is, in the, God has says, um, my inheritance is Israel, and this is their land. Um, so who is the God of this land? And there's a tussle, there's a land, there's a, there's a tussle, a land, you know, but between you, who's, who's the genuine God of this land? Is it Baal or is it Yahweh? It's Yahweh, isn't it? Um, and so there's that, that almighty battle. But I don't think we need to go so far as to say there is no spiritual reality behind that. Um, you've done more work on those passages than I have, but again, I, I think the the Bible's unequivocally clear that there are gods, there are sons of gods. It's just that they are um, the angelic beings, we might say, rather than creator. They're, they're in a different league. You know, <laughs> they're not creators, are they? Um, in fact, if you go back to Genesis one and you see um, how God. Made the stars, and again we read this and we think in Genesis one where God made the stars. We went, oh yeah, he just made the he made the hosts of heaven. He made the stars. For, for, for the early readers, they would have seen that as as um, as the angels, uh, which seems odd to us because we know that stars are balls of gas, you know. But have been the poetic and and the um, the imagery here of Genesis one, um, the uh, uh, verse sixteen. Uh, God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. He also made the stars, which are elsewhere called the host of heaven. And you see throughout the Hebrew Bible, particularly in the Psalms and in Job, that, they, that people worship these, the, the, the sun and the stars, like, like we heard in Deuteronomy 4. And, and God says, no, don't worship them. I've handed the, the other nations to over to worship them. But for you, you're, you're, you're to worship me the creator, I created those guys don't worship them um, so there is a, a spiritual uh, reality behind them yeah, Emma, Emma. Joe, sorry You, thank you for picking me up on something I forgot to say earlier. Yes, so um, in Genesis 11, do we see this in Genesis 11 itself, or is this just a later um, interpretation by, 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 by Moses, for example, Deuteronomy 32, Deuteronomy 4? Um, and the us. So, yes, in Genesis uh, 11, it, God says, Come, let us go down. Confuse their languages. And in Genesis 1, God also speaks like that, doesn't he? Let us create. And, yes, there's this debate. Is this, the trin- is this God, the three persons, um, as, they speak, as they speak to one another, and out of the overflow of that uh, comes forth creation, or is it the divine counsel? Um, I, I think it's both, my, my own view, um, in that um, God, cle- in the same way God delegates uh, um, authority to us, his people, we're his image bearers on earth. Um, so the sons of God, uh, he delegates jobs to them. <laughs> so it shouldn't theologically really be a problem. And so um, it seems that, that, that his um, God created everything. That it, it shouldn't necessarily be a problem that he also had agents of creation um, to help him in that. Um, and yeah, so I think it is. I probably is the, the it is the sons of God coming down. So the irony is, Babel worked. Um, they're trying to lure God down, and God does come down. The sons of God do come down, um, but it's in judgment, from which then they're scattered. Yeah. It's length. Thank you, Salome. So Salome's picked up on something we talked about last time. What's going on in Genesis 6 with the sons of God uh, leaving heaven, ha- uh, having sex with, uh, with the daughters of men. And yes, it's the same category of being, sons of God, Elohim, who, who yes, are left, left their place. And Genesis 6 and Genesis 11, in the structure of Genesis, sort of parallel one another. Um, they're both describing uh, a... A spiritual rebellion, if, if you like, um, so yes, the answer is absolutely yes there mm. yeah it's weird isn't it um, and I, i've grown up in bible teaching churches, and this this stuff's very new to me, but it 's here it 's in the scriptures you can 't really get get your head around it it's, it's weird, and I, I think sometimes we have inherited a slightly demythologized, de weirded bible um, because because we're slightly embarrassed by angels and demons and all that sort of stuff. But it's here. It's here. Should we move on? Should we move on? So I think we have enough of that. And that was an aside. As you may, we're still on page one of our handout, but the, um, we're, we're moving at a much greater pace now. Okay, so things are looking really bleak then in chapter 11, aren't they? And um, the question is, wh- where, where then is this promised seed going to come from? Where's the promised offspring going to be? It looks like it's all really bad. But then, God, we're following the line of Shem still. In the, in the rest of chapter 11, we return to Shem's, uh, Shem's line. And then we zero in on a guy called Abram. Abram. And it looks like he's going to be the seed who's going to restore things. But here's the surprise. Where is Abram? Well, he's in Ur of the Chaldeans which is another name for Babylon. And you might remember that photo I showed you of the Ziggurat of Ur. It's that sort of region. Later in Joshua, Abraham's called an idolater, a worshiper of other gods. He's not looking great. We're, we're following the line of Shem. We're going, oh, where's the rescuer going to come from? And, and uh, oh, 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 great. He's an idolater like everyone else. And what does God do? Well, God calls him in Chaldea, in Ur, and makes an extraordinary promise to him. So um, look at uh, chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. So, whilst he's still in Babylon, he says this The Lord had said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So who are God's people at this point? Well, it's going to be Abraham and his offspring. God's going to make a name for him. Which is that you see the parallel, the opposite, to Babel. They're going to be a nation. They're going to be a blessed nation and what's god's place going to be well god's god's promised them a land he's chosen Abraham to be his inheritance and he's going to give them a land and god's presence well he promises that that through abram all the peoples of the ground literally all the peoples of the ground will be blessed through him so we're getting these links, we're going, Oh, definitely, this is the seed we're looking for, the one who's going to relieve the curse on the ground, the one who's going to bring us back to the Eden like existence. Abram, he's the guy. We've got this threefold promise here. And Abram in verse seven, he obeys. The Lord he goes he goes and sets out for the land of Canaan. The Lord appeared to Abraham, verse seven, and said, To your offspring, your seed, I will give this land. And so he makes an altar. Unfortunately, from then on, um, Abram, Abraham just screws up again and again and again. And it's really embarrassing. He does loads of really awful stuff. He, he runs away to Egypt. God's just given him a land. <laughs> given him a massive promise. What does Abraham do? He pegs it off to Egypt. And, of course, the first readers of this book, they know what Egypt's like, don't they? And they're like, what are you doing? It's looking terrible. What does he do? He gives his wife to Pharaoh to sleep with him. Um, because he's, embra- he's worried that he might get killed because his wife's too pretty. What an idiot. You're thinking, what, what are you playing at? And I guess this is, a, this is a lesson for us on how to read the Bible. The Bible is not a morality textbook. It's not saying we should follow Abraham and um, hand our wives uh, over in case we ever get into trouble. You know, th- our wives are not our bl- bullet shields. They're, they're not our cannon fodder. Don't do that, husbands. Um, <laughs> We often read the Bible like that, don't we, like a morality textbook. And then when we come across these great heroes, we're told they're heroes of the faith. And we go, what are they doing that for? Even I know that's wrong. <laughs> it shows us the Bible is not primarily there to give us a morality tale. And we're going to come back to that later, but that's a really important lesson to learn. But after the, a variety of mess-ups, in, uh, in chapter 13, there is this huge, huge battle. Abraham has a nephew. Called Lot, and um, by the way, here's a, here's a map of uh, some of the uh, some of the movements, and you see how Abraham's travelling all over the place. He's, he starts over on Babylon in Chaldea, in Ur, right over the far right there, and he's moving westwards. Remember, eastwards is the way of danger, westwards is the way of towards God. That, that's the way that the Bible thinks about things. So he comes all the way over to the, the Promised Land. But Abraham has this nephew called Lot, and they're in the promised land, and it's all looking great. It's really blessed, it's it, 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 fruitful. But there's a problem. This ground ain't big enough for the both of them. And so Lot uh, goes, you know what, I'm going to go on the other side of the Jordan. It looks better over there. So Lot goes eastwards. Ooh, bad call, Lot. We, and everyone, you know, we know already, eastwards in the Bible is a bad thing. Adam and Eve, eastwards out of Eden. Cain, eastwards further eastwards always bad lot goes eastwards and he lands at a place called sodom Hmm, doesn't sound great does it and um there's this mighty battle and lot gets sort of caught up in the middle of it and and it's a, really it's, it's like lord of the rings before lord of the rings it's a battle of um four kings against five kings four kings versus five kings and um lot is sort of caught in the middle of it and abraham's there going oh my nephew what an idiot and 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 um, Abraham and his crack troop, 312 no, uh, 318 soldiers, Abraham and the mighty 300, they they go in and and are like the SAS sort of rescue lot out, and it's a brilliant sort of war story, and. Um, and at the end of it, like the victorious kings come to Abraham and go, "You're you're really great there. Can we offer you some of the spoils of war? Some of the, some of the spoils of victory?" And and, and Abraham um, goes, no, "No, I'm all right. Thanks. God's God said I'm, I, I I'm I've got him as my inheritance. I've got him as my portion. I don't need anything else. Thank you." And so he refuses the spoils of war from the king of Sodom. And that really impresses another guy, the king of Jerusalem, called. Melchizedek. And the king of Jerusalem blesses. So Here's a, here's a picture of the, the fight, battle of the five armies um, from uh, the 16th century. Um, it looks quite cool, doesn't it? You can see where Lord of the Rings get, gets it all from, can't you? Um, but then uh, Melchizedek offers uh, bread and wine to Abraham and blesses him. And so we, we get this picture of Abraham already becoming a, a blessing to the nations. Um, and the reason this battle is so important, and I'm, I'm majoring on it, is, is because it triggers the covenant which God is about to make with him in chapter 15. Now, I remember last time I talked about how um, God's covenant with Noah was triggered by his obedience. He, he did something great. He acted like a king. He, he brought rest to, uh, and relief to the cursed ground when he offered that sacrifice. And in response to that, God makes that covenant with him. Well, it's so it is here. So in chapter 15, as you look at it, uh, after this, that is, after this remarkable victory in battle, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, do not be afraid, Abraham, I am your shield, your very great reward. So just like Noah brought rest to chaos and redeemed his offspring in the flood, so Abraham brings rest and peace and saves his offspring from this battle and as a result of that god makes this covenant and it's the same sort of covenant that god made with noah it's a, a royal grant or inherited reward covenant let me read um verse from verse two but Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abraham said, You have given me no children, so a servant of my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord, Yahweh, who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. So Abraham is in as a result of his obedience. But this promise is now on by grace for all of his offspring. They're going to enjoy this land. They're going to receive these blessings because of Abraham's obedience. So the question is, how does, Ab- how does Abraham know that God's going to keep that promise? Well, at this point, God does something very strange. He, he tells Abraham to get a whole bunch of animals and then cut them in half. And so you've got sort of half a cow here, half a cow here, half a ram here, half a ram here, a few birds here, a few birds here. They're all cut in half. It would have been a total bloody mess. And then Abraham goes into a, a trance, like a sleep. And in his dream, or in reality, something like a, a fiery brazier, fiery pot, then passes through those animals which have been cut in half. Very unusual, odd, very odd. What, what does that mean? Well, later, uh, we're, we're, we kind of get the, the idea from, from Jeremiah that, that God is here, is, is making what's called a, a self-maledictory oath. Mal meaning bad. So God's saying, bad stuff's going to happen to me if I break this covenant with you. Um, so essentially God is saying, if I break this promise to you, that you're going to have a massive people, that you're going to have this land, well, let me be cut in half. Let me be slaughtered in half like all these animals. Abraham's lying over there doing nothing. Who passes between the pieces? Just the Lord God. Just him alone. And so that, that's the point. Um, God has promised, um, on pain of his own death, if that can happen, that he will keep those promises. Remember last time the rainbow, the bow in the sky, the battle bow, which is pointing upwards. God is saying, let the, let the arrow fire at me if I break this covenant. Well, so God says the same thing here. It's a covenant he cannot break. Now, in later chapters, um, this covenant is, is, is repeatedly um, confirmed and uh, sort of added to in greater detail. And um, just look at chapter 17, uh, if, you, if you would. And, and notice the, the repetition of that threefold promise as I read. Chapter 17. Now, a long amount of time has passed since chapter 15. Uh, indeed, in, since chapter 12. But it says this, chapter 17. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I'll make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abraham fell down and said, God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abraham. Your name will be Abraham, for I've made you the father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your offspring after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. So Abraham is renamed. His name means father of nations. His wife Sarah or Sarai is renamed Sarah which means princess which indicates she's going to have royalty coming from her. So in chapter 17, this big promise of kings and nations coming from Abraham. But it later he's also given a sign, a sign of circumcision. And um, I came across this hilarious picture, which this is in a, in a Bible in the, in the 14th century. It's quite graphic, isn't it? Um, the circumcision of Adam, it, it, it's, it's so characterful. I, I don't know what the angel's saying to Abraham exactly. Oh, oh, oh of what Abraham's thinking. Is, is this how I do it? Uh, actually, you're taking too much off. Sort of, it's, it's, it's a hilarious picture. But, and, and we might have a sort of similar level of embarrassment. Um, someone actually... Ha- imagine trying to do your quiet time and this was in your Bible. <laughs> um, Got to love it. Let's go back. Um, so we're not utterly distracted by that horrible picture. Um, so what What is circumcision about? Well, this, this is the sign which marks the covenant. And, and this circumcision this sort of suggests three things. It's a, it's a sign for Abraham's uh, children. It, it's the boys who, who are obviously have to be circumcised. And, and the, the image behind it is that basically they've, they've got to cut their foreskin off, otherwise they will be cut off. That, that's the imagery there. You've got to have the covenant sign, otherwise you will be cut off. And that's why later in Israel, it, it really was a, a capital punishment offence not to circumcise your children. You may remember later in Exodus, there's this moment where God almost puts Moses to death because he hasn't circumcised his own son. It's really significant. It's a sign of covenant. You have to circumcise your kids, otherwise they're cut off. Okay, better take foreskin, fine. It's also a sign of consecration. God makes his promise to Abraham that he's going to be a, 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 kings are going to come from him he's going to be a blessing to the international nations and and circumcision was this sign of consecration you, you are you're a people of priests people of priests who are going to reach the nations that that's part of what circumcision means and it was also a sign of cleansing it's in the the un, uh, foreskins were considered unclean because they can get infected so that the unclean part is cut off and put away in all of that, they might be wholly devoted to the holy God. There's a whole range of meanings in this sign. and You see the, these sort of pictures uh, building. And so you can see that this is really, really important, that Abraham is circumcised and his, and his children as a, as a sign that they've, they've accepted this, this covenant. They're, they're, they're in union with it. Now, in, in the coming, coming chapters, chapters 18 to 21, um, you, you see a whole bunch of other successes by Abraham. He manages to intercede a lot when Sodom and Gomorrah are about to be destroyed by God, um, Abraham manages to be that priestly intercessor and rescue his offspring once again uh, out of Sodom. Uh, but also, there are many other failures. G- guess, what, um, guess what Abraham does when he goes to Abimelech in, in the region of Shur? Well, they notice his wife's a bit pretty, and he goes, You know what, I'm going to use her as a meat shield again, and pushes her forward and so, says, No, she's just my sister. And we're thinking, I'm sure he did that before he did and he does it again we're going oh no Abraham you're such an idiot so he has some big successes some massive failures yet again but in chapter 22 um, there's this biggest test of faith because remember w- w- what's the big promise God's been making to Abraham that you're going to be a great nation kings are going to come from your line and at the moment he's looking at his wife who's very very old and he's thinking this is a joke how can that possibly be? And uh, now he has a son. God miraculously gives him a son called Isaac, which means he laughs because they found it so funny that God would do that. But then God says, I want you to sacrifice him to me. I want you to, to sacrifice Isaac. Your only hope of, of blessing, going to the nations, your only hope of offspring, I want you to offer him me and you may know the story at the very last moment uh, a re- uh, as he's about to plunge the dagger in uh, a replacement is made a ram as a, in this famous painting by caravaggio a ram is in and, and the uh, the ram dies in the place of um, the son. that's a, a beautiful painting and you see you see isaac's willingness to go along with it he wasn't a small boy he was an adult so he would have gone along he knew the plan he was willing to die uh, but, but abraham uh, trusted god uh, to raise him from the dead essentially and that's what god did he made a replacement interestingly the mountain upon which um, this happened mount moriah uh, which later got renamed mount zion which is where the temple was built isn't that cool and so the israelites again reading this story they would have, they would have seen all these hyperlinks and they would have seen the detail and uh, the resonances of it uh, this more recent painting, I think, captures the how essentially Isaac is that Christ figure uh, being offered up by the Father willingly, and yet how he is stopped by the angel. There's there's life. There's a there's a replacement there. And as a result of that um, testing of Abraham's faith, all of these uh, covenant promises are then are then repeated um, for Abraham. So uh, chapter twenty-two and verse sixteen, if you look at that. God said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have, have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Do you see again this type of covenants? It's royal grants. You're in by the obedience of the covenant head. And now perpetually on by grace for the offspring. And that pretty much is the plot line of the rest of Genesis. Don't worry, we're really going to speed up now. Um, and, uh, and, and you see this covenant being reaffirmed again and again and again to, to, Ab- to Abraham's offspring, Abraham's line. And um, I think you've got this diagram in your service sheets. Here's a little bit of a family tree. Uh, showing, uh, showing what's going on. And um, let, let me give you an example of that. So so let's flip to Genesis 26. And God repeats these promises made to Abraham, to his son Isaac. Verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the previous famine in Abraham's time, and Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar, the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Live in your inheritance. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you and bless you. For, you. for to you and your offspring, I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father, Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. Give them all these lands, and through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Why? Why? Because Abraham obeyed me and did everything I required of him, keeping my commands, my decrees, and my instructions. Do you see, it's all rooted in Abraham's extraordinary obedience. In because of Abraham's works, on by grace for his offspring. Now here's a quiz for you. Um, what is the promised line? So there's Abraham. Uh, who, who is the promised line? Is it his firstborn Ishmael? Or is it his second-born, Isaac? Hands up for Ishmael. Hands up for Isaac. Yes, correct. Uh, next line, is it the Isaac's first-born, Esau? Or is it Isaac's second-born, Jacob? Hands up for Esau. It should be Esau, shouldn't it? He's the first-born. But no, that's right. It's Jacob. You know the story too well. And what about Jacob? This is where it gets tricky. He has 12 sons. Who's the promised line of, of, of Jacob? Sorry, no, oh, no. Judah, Joseph. It's confusing, isn't it? Why are the brothers annoyed with Joseph? So to to mm-hmm. uh, Joseph got the coat, which signifies he's the inheritor. So, uh, so initially, it is Joseph. He he he's the inheritor of of the blessings of the promises. Um. But later, the, the the sons of Joseph, uh, the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, they, they really screw up. The tribe of Joseph really screw up, and so actually God then changes—not changes his changes mind—but he then goes to Judah, from whom the kings then come. Which is why, as you read through these the Genesis accounts, um, the, these later Je- the Joseph accounts, it keeps on sort of switching between Joseph and Judah, which is really weird. Because uh, Joseph is basically the, the, what became most of the northern tribe of Israel, and Judah became mostly the, the southern tribe. And both both are in the interest of, 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 of the author and, and the editors. So eventually, the book of Genesis ends. Uh, all of God's people num- now number 70, 70 people, uh, which is interesting because so that's the same number of the nations in Genesis 11. And they're in Egypt. They're, they're not in God's land. They're in Egypt. And at the very end of the book of Genesis, uh, God promises from Judah would come a king. From Judah would come a rescuer. So if you want to fill in the box there, um, God's people, well, they are the 70. Uh, they are circumcised. They are cleansed. Uh, they are consecrated. What is God's place? Well, it's, it's, it's Canaan. It's the inheritance God has given his people, that land, and yet they're in Egypt. And God's presence, well, he promises to bless the nations, but at the moment they're in Egypt. Um, and Joseph, you might remember, he, he saves the world. The world comes to him for grain, food. And we're seeing that, that beginning of that promise uh, being a blessing to the nations. So that's the plot. Um, one thing which I, I found quite interesting um, is in my research this week, something completely new to me. And um, someone made a case, and I, I don't, I'm not sure I've completely landed on whether it's right or not, but I thought I'd share it with you because it's fascinating. And someone made a case that basically the, the story of, of Genesis and the patriarchs basically mirrors the story of Israel. You remember how I said um, Genesis 2 and 3 is like a microcosm of Israel's story? They're placed in a good land. They're given a law. They break the law. They're cursed, exiled eastwards. Remember that? Well, basically, the, the argument goes that so it is with, the, with uh, Genesis 12 to the end of the Genesis. It's like a mirror of Israel's story. So Abraham sort of parallels Israel's early history. Um, he's outside the land. He's in, he's he's far away. He's in Babylon, as it were. You know, he's in the wilderness, and then he's called and given marvellous promises. Um, Isaac's story parallels Israel's middle history when he's blessed in the land. Look back at the, the map. Um, Isaac doesn't really go anywhere. He's just enjoying the land, enjoying the blessing of the land. Um, Jacob, we all know, was a bit of a sneak. He was a bit of a nasty piece of work. And as a result of his sin, he is exiled eastwards. Hmm, that sounds familiar. And then lastly, Joseph and Judah's story parallels Israel's future history looking for a rescuer, a king, um, who would bless the nations, save the nations. Um, so this, I, I found that very interesting. I'm not sure if that's got legs or not, but I, I found that fascinating, and I, I like seeing those sort of links. So then, why should we care about the, uh, the Abrahamic covenant? Well let's, let's touch down with some sort of application as we close. Why should we care? Well, you probably know this already, but in the New Testament, Abraham is picked up again and again and again as the model of faith. Uh, we are called again and again, in so many different places, to have faith like Abraham. And this is interesting. So in the New Testament, Abraham is almost like a, a, a prototype believer. He's a, he's a type of a believer. Someone who, who trusts God's promises and as a result is saved by grace alone. And um, when we turn to, to Galatians uh, chapter, chapter 3 and see this for ourselves, it's page 878. And it says, verse 6, quoting uh, Genesis 15, verse 6, So Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles, the Japhethites, by faith. And announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All the nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. It's just one example of many. Which just reaffirms again and again. Like Abraham, we are saved not by what we do. We are saved not by... Um, our obedience not by our, our religious activity uh, not by our, our moral performance which goes up and down week by week we are saved by faith alone and, and Abraham is held up again and again as a model of faith uh, James just covers the flip side of the same coin yes Abraham was saved by faith but the, the, ex- the, the, the proof that it was genuine faith made it, proved itself in works genuine works as he offered up his son uh, to God in Genesis 22 we're saved by faith alone and genuine faith is always proved by works. And so I, I, I guess, I like, just like Tom um, began our, our evening together, um, if you're struggling with assurance tonight, look at Abraham. He was a total screw-up. I mean, how ma- seriously, he, he, he made so many catastrophic errors. And yet he was saved through faith by believing that promise. And you might look at yourself and think, I'm a catastrophic... Graphic screw-up. Okay, I might not have offered my wife twice to someone else in order to get myself out of trouble, but I'm a screw-up in other ways. And yet we're saved by grace alone. By faith alone. And so isn't it interesting? Paul says the Abrahamic covenant is the gospel. It is the new covenant. It's essentially the same. It's the gospel preached in advance. We're saved by faith alone. So Abraham is a type of believer. We should have faith like Abraham. But there's another way of reading this book of Genesis, which is the way I'm trying to be teaching it. It's interesting. New Testament says Abraham, model of believer, type of believer. The Old Testament primarily teaches Abraham as a type of Christ, as a type of Jesus. And so there's a sense in which we should also have faith in Abraham. Abraham. Because he's presented to us as the saviour, the seed uh, through which salvation would come. He's a, he's a prophet who speaks with God. He's a priest who offers sacrifices to mediate for others, to save others like Lot, his hopeless nephew. He's a king who brings rest and peace where there is chaos and conflict. It is Abraham's obedience which results in blessing by grace for his offspring. Abraham is the type of Christ because it is Christ's perfect obedience which results in blessing for us by grace. Now, it's strange, isn't it, to think of, it, think of Abraham in those two ways, but actually it's quite important. He is a model believer, saved by faith alone. He's also a type of Christ uh, who saves his offspring as a result of his obedience. And we need to see both. It's important then that we receive the sign of faith. Um, we aren't to be circumcised. That's pretty clear in the New Testament, isn't it? That's good news for the guys. Um, but there is a sign of faith. Would you turn with me to Colossians 2, page 889, talking about us Gentiles. When you were dead in your sins, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us. Am I in the right bit? No, I'm not. Sorry, verse 11, isn't it? Up, uh, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Um, Jesus says, the Great Commission, baptise people. Baptism is the sign of the covenant. It, it's really important that we're baptised. That's not what saves us, but it's the sign given to us that shows we're in union uh, with these promises, that we're united with Christ. Thank you, Johnny. It's hard to sort of compete with a with a with a builder, isn't it? So it's, it's these promises. Uh, it's by being baptized which shows our, our unity um, with uh, with these with these promises, our union with Christ. So if I'm going to say, if if you're someone trusting in Christ today, that's fantastic. You must be baptized. You must be baptized, not as a merit meritorious thing which you need to do in order to get saved. We take it you are saved. But as the sign that, you, uh, that you're in union with Christ, and that you've died with him, that you'll be raised with him one day, you must be baptised. Don't put it off to some day when you think you might one day be holy enough to be baptised. Uh, baptism is, is, is not your graduation ceremony as a Christian. It's the first day of kindergarten. It's the very first thing you do. Uh, which is why, in the same way that um, in the Old Testament they, they circumcised their children, uh, their boys, so in the new covenant, uh, this promise is for us. Peter says at Pentecost, this promise is for you and your children. Which is why here at CCB we, we raise our children in the faith. but We raise them as believers. We raise them giving them the covenant sign. We encourage them every day to believe. We, we don't treat them as unbelievers, cut off from God. We don't treat them as potential future believers who might one day come to God. We treat them as, as covenant believers. We give them the covenant sign. And we pray that they don't walk away from that. Um, but this is, uh, this is what we do as a church. I'll stop there. No doubt that's thrown up lots of questions for you. I uh, want to turn the person next to you, buzz for a few minutes, and then we'll have a bit of Q&A. I'm aware we're, we're, we're moving at quite a pace. Um, I should say from following weeks, we're going to go even faster in terms of... we're we these early chapters of the Bible are so important. We've really slowed down for them, but it, the rest of the Bible, we 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 go much quicker. We won't be like li- literally looking at every passage how, like we have been. Um, so, um, so yeah, we'll, we'll speak. If you might, if you're worried that we're a third of the way through and we haven't even yet finished the first book of the Bible, um, that's why. That's why, because the Bible Genesis is just so important. Yeah. Should we have a few few questions? We've um, heard. Hello, Ransford. Um, my first thing we're thinking about was that um if uh Bab Rabban the Hamicite was as bad as everyone else and God didn't choose everybody as a good person then why did God choose Bad Rabb? Uh guys by everyone else because he cared this as Why did God choose Abraham if he wasn't better than anyone else? Um yeah and that's explicitly the point. So I think I gave you that that reference in Joshua We've talked about how, um, I think Joshua was saying to Israel there, like, you're nothing special. When God called Abraham, he was an idolater in Babylon. <laughs> and, and that's precisely the point. He, he, was, he, was, he was a nothing out of nowhere, wished for a gods. Why did God choose him? On one level, because he was the line of Shem. Remember, God promised, uh, God, we're still looking for the seed. Someone's got to be the seed. <laughs> Why not him? And so um, we're, we're, we're still looking for the saviour, the, the rescuer, who's going to bring us back into the good ground and bless it. And, um, so, and we know it's going to come from the line of Shem and we know from the line of terror and then we land on Abraham so within the story that's why if you're asking in terms of why did God choose Abraham and not say Joe Bloggs his neighbour who's just as bad idolater and perhaps also related to terror pass I, I guess we, we get in here get, we're getting into the mystery of God's election which is, which is actually also a very big theme in in Genesis so if you look back at the um, if you look back at the family tree we can find it there we are um, it's Ishmael should have been the line of promise but it wasn't it was Isaac um, Esau should have been the line of promise he was the eldest but it wasn't it was Jacob and later in in Romans uh, I think it's chapter chapter 9 uh, God uses Jacob and Esau as as a case study of God's election he says, I I, I didn't choose, uh, I, you know, he said, even in the womb, Esau, I hated, Jacob, I loved. It's basically a very very um, Jewish way of saying, um, I chose, I chose, I have an elect. It was even before they had a chance to do anything good or bad. They're in the womb. God has an elect. He has, that, has a chosen line. And so if you're wondering, well, why, sh- why should God love me? I'm so hopeless. I'm so compromised in so many ways. And on one level, yeah, God shouldn't because because you are a sinner. Just we're all sinners. And yet God has placed his love upon us by grace. He has chosen us. And if God has chosen us, well, we're his. And so this, is, this should be a cause of great comfort to us that God chooses losers. He chooses sinners. And he saves them by grace. So yeah, there's no specific reason, really, I, I guess, other than the fact he's from the line of Shem. Good question. Jacob. Um, so, so obviously... Yes, so why is the covenant signed just for men in, in the Abrahamic covenant, um, uh, whereas in the new covenant it's, it's for all believers, boy, boys and girls, men and women? Um, in, we're going to come to this when we come to look at the new covenant, so spoiler alert, but the new covenant's better than the old. <laughs> and um, we, we saw back in Genesis 3, the part of the curse is, is the battle of the sexes. And, and the turmoil between them. And, and, and some of that's played out in, in, in how families in the engineeries behaved. behave, they're, they're very much patriarchal. Um, that could be a good thing. Often it was a very bad thing because it was abused. Um, but in a patriarchal society, what, what, the, what the patriarch did, everyone else followed. And so um, the importance to circumcise the boys was essentially say the heads of every future household will follow the Lord. The, and uh, it, it's taken for granted that the women will follow. Um, as, um, so it's a, marriage is assumed in the old covenant the way to bless and to have children is assumed in the old covenant it's different in the new it's better in the new because girls as well as boys are offered the covenant sign which is why at Pentecost it's so exciting that the spirit falls down not just on men but on women too it's exciting that not just men are baptised but women too it, the new covenant is just better it's why in Galatians he says here there is no, neither slave nor free male nor female we're all one in Christ um, so whilst maintaining our sexual differences, and there are differences obviously between men and women, biologically and other ways, but we still have equal value. We're co-heirs, as it says in 1 Peter 3. We're co-heirs of the gift of life, which is unthinkable to, to people from a patriarchal background. Women, co-heirs, I mean, you know, like, usually there's only one heir. Of all the boys, there's one heir, and then they had to, the rest of them had to then belong. Like, you saw that in the, the Jacob narrative. You've got 12 sons, they're all fighting over the inheritance. One of them gets it. You think, and, um, and then that, that leader figure then spreads it out amongst the others. You've got one heir. So much better than the New Covenant. Because men and women are co-heirs of the gift of life. So yes, so it's won- it wonderful that my wife was baptised. Uh, um, I, I was there, actually, at actually baptism when uh, she uh, was 23. It's wonderful to see my daughter baptised, Chloe. She was a girl. It, it's brilliant. Um, so yes, women, you're fully included in salvation. Um, you can receive the covenant sign. Guineas. Good news. James. Yes. 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 What do I mean by have faith in Abraham? Um, in the sense that he is a type of Christ. He is a type. Is a. Um, in the New Testament, we're told various people and figures are types of things. The temple, we're told, is a type of Christ because um, Christ is the place where we now gather to meet with God and have our sins forgiven. Um, Melchizedek, that king of Jerusalem we met earlier on, we're told is a type of Christ um, because he's a priest and a king. He's like Jesus, who's both a priest and a king. And um, As we look at Abraham, yes, in one level he's just an ordinary believer, saved by faith alone. He's a model believer. But in the Genesis narrative, he's Primarily, the line of promise. He represents the promised seed of Eve, who's coming to um, bring us back into the land and bring blessing to the land and, and bring blessings to the nations. He's, he's a he's a type of Christ, and this covenant is cut with Abraham um, because of his remarkable obedience, Christ-like obedience, you might say. In in the, in that battle, he does that great act of victory, and as a result of that, God gives him a reward. He's in by, as that Christ type, in by works, but on by grace for his offspring. And, and, and this is why there's this tension, because we need to read Genesis carefully, both seeing, oh who's, who's, who's the type of Christ here? Who's, uh, and, and But also seeing, there's, there's, what can we learn here as believers, uh, as examples? We're quite used to reading these guys as examples, aren't we? We're probably not quite used to reading the Bible as seeing these people as types of Christ. What I'm trying to encourage us to do is think more about this, um, whilst not letting go of that. So, so um, both, both are good, and both are biblical ways of reading this text. Yeah. Thank you. Hello, Juliet. Hi. when you say have faith in them, we just say, um, we have to understand that the of God, yeah. to, yeah. to thank you Juliet it's very helpful clarification so um, she's saying um, when you say Abraham's a type of Christ you mean he's a foreshadowing of the Christ who would come yes absolutely I'm not saying Abraham is Christ but at that time he was, he's the closest thing you got in the same way Noah was a type of Christ he's a prophet priest king he brings rest to creation, relieves the curse upon the ground, brings us back into a new creation. He looks a lot like Jesus, oh, but then he falls in the garden. He gets drunk, and, and oh, he's not the Christ. Abraham is a type of Christ. he foreshadows Christ. He's a picture of the Christ to come, but he's definitely not the Christ <laughs> because Jesus wouldn't use his wife as a meat shield. Um, in fact, Jesus does the opposite, doesn't he? He steps in front in order for his wife to be rescued. Wife to be, wife to be protected. It says, it you read these texts, you can, you go, oh, Abraham, what an idiot. But it, each one points forward to Christ in a unique way. See so something of what Christ does, even if it's the mirror reflection of it. Abraham offers his wife up to save himself. Jesus offers himself up to save his wife. Do you see? Hey, Slemmy. Salome's question is, if, if I don't see it as a morality book, how do I see it? I'm saying it's not just a morality book. It's not primarily a ba- morality book. It's not only a morality book. Clearly, there are morals to learn. Um, but this, um, this story is not written primarily for our morality. If it were, we'd be in an awful mess, because we'd be polygamists. At this, you know, we, 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 or we'd be utterly confused, because people we know are supposed to be the goodies are doing bad things. And it, it becomes very confusing. Um, so absolutely, there's morality here. And we'll get to that next week as we, as we see the Mosaic Covenant uh, with the law. And there's definitely morality, definitely there's law here, which is good for us to, to heed and um, to listen to. Um, but um, I'm saying it's not just that. But often the way Christians read the Old Testament is just a morality book. How shall I live today? Mm. Um, I think we should try and see, where's Christ in this scripture? And that, that's how this covenantal framework helps us. Yeah. Fantastic. Shall I do some prayer? And then we're going to go to the park and have some beers. Our Father God, we praise you for the perfect, righteous obedience of Jesus Christ. Thank you for his great victory over sin, over Satan, over death thank you that as a result of his great victory we are in by grace we praise you Lord for including us in Christ for extending your blessing to us Japhethites us Gentiles for offering to us whether we're men or women the covenant sign of baptism and I pray Lord that we would um, continue to spread this good news spread this blessing to the nations in Balaam and ourselves receive and pass on the covenant sign uh, to our children. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.